Hello and happy new year and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Castelli. I am your host as ever, Joe Robinson, and I am joined as ever by Mr. James Spender. Happy new year, Joseph. Happy new year to you. And on today's episode, we are joined by one of the most knowledgeable men in professional cycling. He's the king of cool, the Kernick Quickstep director sportive and Copenhagen city councillor, Brian Holm. But before we get onto that, let's start this year as we ended the last with some things we like and some things we don't like. James, happy new year. Bon new year to you. 2021, a year of hope, hopefully. What are some things that you have been liking in the cycling world over the festive break? Well, you've been getting uh, slightly more rotund on Baileys and mince pies, I assume. Uh, yes, you assume correctly. I did try to go out and ride as much as possible, but the weather and the Baileys were against me. But when I did, one of the things that I really enjoyed, and this is possibly the most boring thing I'm going to say in 2021, I really like mug guards. Uh, one pair in particular, they're called the Quick Guard, and they come up off one side of a kind of modified quick-release axle. Um, right. Basically, I'm not going to explain how they work. You can Google them if you're really interested. But they, they, they're really, basically, they're easy to install. They don't look right, okay. utterly rubbish. And not, You don't have to attach them to any brake break, uh, calipers. No, none like of that. Malarkey. They're universal fit. Uh, they don't cost the earth. I think something like 40 quid a pair, which is kind of okay. And um, I, yeah, stuck them on my winter commuter. And then within that, I rebuilt the old fella. So it's my original road bike. And Eddie, the Eddie, the Eddie Merckx, the very same. He's a sandy colour, if not beige. I've had him since uh, 2002, probably. And he's even older than that. But I tell you what, anyone that needs a little bit of like time out from what, everything that's going on, get yourself a good podcast. Even if you can only take 20... This, this one. one. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, get this one. And even if you can only take 20 minutes, just rewrap uh, your handlebars on your winter trainer. It makes it that much nicer to look at, to go out on. And if you really can, um, recable it. It's not that expensive to recable a bike. If you don't know how to do it, it's a really easy, one of the easier things to look up online and really satisfying. And it can render an old clunky bike into something that feels quite new and quite lovely. So... Rebuilding bikes, adding mug guards, listening to podcasts. I have been loving those things. How about yourself, mate? Perfect. How about yourself? Um, and no, I want to know first mm. before that, James. I'm going to throw it back at you and know is there anything that's been giving you the grumbles? The grumbles in that same time frame. Uh, it's when you wake up in the middle of the night and you wee. Yeah, I, I know all about that. And, yeah, and you one eye it to the toilet. You don't dare open both because that properly breaks the sleep and you walk into the toilet and it's still dark and you sit down and you've left the toilet seat up. So you just drop that extra inch and it feels like at that time, it feels like you're falling, 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 falling. When am I going to stop? And then you just hit this cold porcelain and it's just, it's, it's all been, it's all come to naught. You're awake, you're distressed and you still need to have a wee. So I've been really disliking that. And that's happened to me far too many times over the last couple of weeks. It might be, might be something to do with the Baileys. Could be something to do with the Baileys. Could be something to do with the porcelain. We will never know. We will never know. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Other than that, nothing to complain about really other than the obvious, which I won't. 
Good to hear. Yeah. How about you, mate? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about me? What have I been liking? So, uh, as you all know, uh, regular listeners, I hurt my leg in December. Not that I want to go on about it. Uh, that small violin has been played. But I'm nearly back to being fine, I guess. I was told eight weeks off the bike. I should be back on the bike by the end of this week. So that's five weeks. So I must be a medical miracle or like Superman and able to, you know, repair quicker than the average human. Um, But why has that been the case? Well, I've been doing some pretty intensive physio with my physio, Francois. Shout out, Francois. Francois? Where'd you find Francois? The NHS. Oh, that's uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, We've been video chatting. It's been excellent. Uh, But one of the things I've been doing a lot and I've been using a lot are ferrobands, which are, in essence, just some latex tubes that can offer you resistance against muscles and joints and are used by physios on patients to help them sort of repair bad bad injuries and also just in general build strength. Um, and I'm pretty sure that you've probably used them, James. And I must say they are excellent because at the moment, I won't show you, James, because it's this is a children's show. Um, one of my legs is, you know, normal because I've been using it normally. So it's its usual thick, It's like a meatball marinara that you might get in Subway, right? Nice, thick, (laughs) quite quite plump. What kind of bread is it? Uh, Italian herb and cheese. And then the other one, because I haven't been using it for three weeks, and I didn't realise this, but the the sort of the thigh, the quad, is one of the quickest muscles to um, waste in the body when not used. It'll be one of the ones that sort of depletes quickest. And now after four, three to four weeks of not walking on this leg properly, James, Mm-hmm. My other leg looks like a petrol station baguette. Okay. It's a sad, it's a sad little pencil-like like leg. Something from upper crust at the end of the day they put in the bins. Not even upper crust. I'm talking sort of like uh, Tesco on the side of the A20, um, two-day-old baguette that's been reduced. The cling film, <laughs> ham and cheese behind that dodgy pub bar. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. But well, one that's... of the things one of the things that's been is going a long way into helping me rectify that situation are therabands. And I think just in general, as cyclists, we should use them because they can work a lot of joints, a lot of muscles, a lot of parts of your bodies that we often neglect on the bike, something like your hamstrings, and make you in in essence a more rounded rider, as we all know. If you do a little bit of work off the bike, it goes a long way of this is very true and it's not just about being a it can be a potentially stronger rider but also less or more injury proof uh but yeah therabands um are wicked that is the brand isn't it and you can get knockoff ones uh, mine's a knockoff one i'll be yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah knockoff just, ones it's like me it's like calling stuff a, you know a hoover yeah. or uh it's true my top tips on therabands when you store them put them in a little baggie or um a, a carry bag with some talcum powder um, dosh 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 on the top and then shake it round that just stops us sticking together and you don't even have to buy a TheraBand just get an old inner tube um, cut it to length and tie a knot in it and then that's going to double as some kind of resistance but TheraBands are nice because they're funky colours yeah mine are colour coded so yeah, there you go well I'm glad to hear that your legs are getting better uh, that sounds like a very positive step and many steps to follow with Francois but has anything been getting you down Joseph uh Nothing bike-related, James, and I'm trying not to let anything get me down in 2021. I want That's nice. Good vibes only, positive thoughts equal positive actions. Um, so, so nothing, except for maybe uh, there only being two series of Succession, 
uh, an excellent HBO drama that I watched over the festive break. I say watched, I binged it. It's probably one of the best things I've ever watched on television. I think James agrees with me. So there's a top tip for you. Something If you're spending a lot more time on the turbo trainer this winter into this in, incoming lockdown, watch it. Watch Succession while you're training. Yeah, Succession, excellent. Very sweary, though. Very sweary. Just, just, so, just so everybody knows, very sweary. Uh, and, uh, yeah, podcast recommendation, because I know everyone's going to go and re-cable their bikes after this and want to listen to something. And, yes, you could listen to this. Or you could listen uh, to um, Who Dares Wins, which is a podcast about the SAS, which sounds terribly macho. Now I've said that, and I'm not a macho person, but it just has some mad stories in it. One of the best ones kicks off with uh, a guy who um, has a fight with a chimp when he's 10. And that kind of puts him into wanting to be in the SAS. And another one is about, is, is just really sad. It's about um, post-traumatic stress and a guy kind of finding himself going to Chile and taking ayahuasca and meeting the devil on a, a trip in a cave. Um, ayahuasca is a kind of purgatory drug um, or a purging drug. So yeah, great podcast. Anyway, we should talk about cycling and we should talk about our guests. So Joe, shall we? Let's get Brian home onto the episode. I'm sitting watching a Formula One. Uh, did you? Um, did you just? I'm guessing you just saw the crash. Fuck, I saw it, I saw you were there. Shit. That's one of the worst. James, have you just seen the the crash that just took place? No. Where's so, where, where where's, where's the race? So it's in Bahrain, and um, the French guy Romain Grosjean in the first couple of corners just sort of deviated across the road and hit the barriers and the car snapped in half whoa the, the fuel made it explode kind of um but luckily he just got out well, he he got out and walked away very frightened but um yeah that's um it's one of the worst ones i've seen actually that's... Wow. cars don't tend to catch fire these days yeah. they used to they used to be a thing so who's winning who's in the lead they have to fix the fences you know so it's still uh I don't know what they call it in Formula One neutralization, and uh, they're about to restart. I think in a few minutes they start again, but they have to fix uh, the fences. Oh, they got the safety car out. Yeah, no, they, they just stopped. You know, red flag, and uh, they, they stopped everything. Everybody went into the pit, and uh, that you know they have to repair the fences before they can start again, and that's certainly going to cost a little hour. That would like mentally, I'd be. As a as a driver, that would be hard to get a switch back on. Probably for everybody, but I think it was the last race for Romain Grosjean anyway. Yeah, so uh, it could pretty much have been his last race. Yeah? And for the others, I don't know how many times they saw it, but I mean, they're probably made of something special, aren't they? Yeah, it's it's like um, you know what it reminds me of in a way is watching a rider crash. It's like. With F1 is when they, when you see, I mean, you've probably seen loads hit the floor, Brian, and you have that moment, heart in mouth moment where you're just like, oh no, that looks like it's bad. Like they just said, he and Tilly, they said, you know, like also as an old Formula One driver, he said that, you know, as a cyclist or driver, you don't really think about it. Eh? You know, as a cyclist, you always, you're always pretty sure it's never going to happen to me. Eh? I mean, mm. You probably start to think that stuff when you're getting uh, 35 years, so you have wife and kids, and then you sort of know, then it's over. Does that, cha- does that change rider- riders in your experience, then, as soon as they have families, they different different riders? Not everybody, but probably like 80%. I mean, when you're alone, you're young, you're single, 
I mean, you're master of the universe, aren't you? But as soon as you get married, having kids, you know, little house, well, it's changed everything, yeah? I mean, like Dick Mole said once, the perfect rider, he lived with his parents, with his mother till he was 36. Then he quit cycling, and then you, you can have a normal life, yeah? <laughs> did, you, did you find that in your career? Did you have children when you were still racing? Nope. Mm. I got it when I stopped. But I remember the first signs, you know, when you started to wear a helmet, you know, in the bunch sprint, you know, when you're getting 30 years, you know, you broke your bones. And when you start to put on your helmet, I remember I think, wow, probably I'm getting too old for that stuff now. <laughs> Time to do something else. Yeah, yeah man. See the small it... sign. <laughs> so th- this actually brings us on quite quickly. Have you, how's, it must have been good to see um, your, one of your riders, Fabio Jakobsen, back on the bike last week. This is quite reminiscent of that because of what happened to him at Tour of Poland. But you know, thank you know, thankfully, someone above was looking out for him, and he was back. And now he's back on a bike, which is huge. That must be really nice for you to see as one of his. Yeah, it, it's true. You know, to to be honest, I think I was not the only one. But when I saw the crash in Poland. I stopped the cast to see the sprint. I never liked it because it was downhill. I always complained about it. Mm. And, uh, I, I thought we wouldn't see him again. I mean, the doctors was the same. They said, that's over. Were you there, Brian? Yes, I, I, I was there. You know, mm. there was a, sorry, my language is a fucking madhouse to be there, you know, mm. and, and especially when, when uh, I mean, it was just crazy, like a bomb exploded, you know, and uh, and honestly, we thought he would make it, you know, like mm. just as midnight, we heard maybe he would survive, you know, and not being brain damaged. And from that point, you don't really think about if he's be a cyclist or not, just to survive and have yeah. a bit of a normal life, you know, then suddenly cycling is not that important anymore in that situation. But okay, again, to see him, you know, on the bike, that's at least, so we're getting back to normal, eh? sort of. Yeah. I've met him before. I've I've chatted to him before, and he is like he is like so young, and you forget how he's he's like younger than me, and I'm quite young. He's quite like a child. You chat to him, and he's so enthusiastic, and he was quite cocky, which I liked about Fabio, and I think he still will be quite cocky. So to see him, you know, getting back to some sort of normality must be so it's so sort of heart. It makes you feel good, I think. Especially having to experience yeah, what you saw. I, I agree. Well, that was a shock for everybody, of course. I mean, he was unconscious, but for his family and everything, must have been a nightmare. You just said about the, that downhill run into Katowice, that it's pretty rubbish. And it seems like the UCI are being classic UCI and not really putting their hands up at all. Because they've, they've I mean, you may see what Dylan Grunewagen did as wrong. It was a racing incident, but UCI have not kind of made any comment about that stage finish that, as you said, Brian, you complained about it. There was guys from other teams who have said for years, that's not right. I've spoken to guys in the peloton who were like, we hate that finish. We've said before we hate it. So it's a bit, it just feels a bit shitty that the UCI are not doing anything, like putting their hands up. I mean, it's just not nothing about, it's easy to say afterwards I said something, but actually I mailed about it. There was something wrong. I said, I mean, we can do an uphill sprint on the other side, you know, they probably go 55 an hour instead of 85 or 90, whatever they're doing down. And I said, when are they going to have my one big nasty 
accident. And uh, coming to this UCI, wow, it's business as usual, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you sometimes think, what are they doing? Well, they gave a corona vacant nine months. Yeah, nine. Mistake, okay. But we have to keep in mind also, you have to take care of the kids also. For sure, corona vacant make, uh, made a mistake, but it happens in a bunch, friend. Eh? So uh, I think people was quite rough on him on social media also. Hannah didn't really like it. Eh? I think he was already punished enough. So what do you what do you say to your to your guys after a day like that back at the hotel? Who talks to the team and how do you how do you get everybody through it? I, in the start, we did not know, to be honest, if you would survive or, or what. There was nothing to say. I mean, the telephone was ringing every two minutes. Somebody and we didn't know. So honestly, it was nothing to say because we just did not know what was up and down. But. As soon, I don't know, it was 11.30 or 12 o'clock at night, uh, we, I don't know, the way Jim sort of up of the coma, they could, and they sent some impulse to his brain, and they said he would not be brain damaged. And that was very good news. For the rest, we didn't know, but we had a meeting with, with the writers, and uh, the doctor were coming, uh, our team doctor, Ivan, he was speaking to the writers. And that was about midnight. And uh, of course, we discussed, you know, like we would still have to wait if we would have, would we have started. I mean, I would have said no. I would probably have gone home, I think. Uh, but it was up to writers to the side, of course. But after that, we have a chat at night and just that he would probably would survive and not be brain damaged. That's very, very good news. And uh, we saw the day after. Uh, Ballerini, he was second right after. But of course, it's always back of your mind. I mean, you just cannot let it go. Have you sp- have you spoken to him since Fabio? Have you have you chatted to him at all? We had a Skype meeting with him. Yes. And how how is he? Sort of how is he? Like sort of spirits? Is he is he look? How's he f- sort of dealing with it all? I mean, I mean it's hard to just. To be honest, you know, you know, one thing, if you have a meeting or calling somebody, I think in a case like that, I don't think we are like 70 people in the team. He'd be crazy if everybody called him mm. to hear how he's doing. You know, he cannot keep on repeating himself. And uh, everybody knows you can pretend you're happy, but you, we never know really what happened inside the, the head of the writers. Eh? But of course, it was nice to see him and he was uh, looking sort of okay. Yeah. Mm. Do you, do you look at racing now, Brian, as more or less dangerous than when when you were riding? Because obviously you're you're riding back in predominantly in the nineties, and as you mentioned earlier, no no helmets that wasn't compulsory, um, and you know arguably the equipment isn't quite as as dependable as it is now. Equally, things are maybe faster and people take more risks. I mean, do you from a the team car perspective? Do things look more dangerous out there or less dangerous? Uh, I have no doubt it's way more dangerous. They are going faster than my generation, much faster. I mean, we got more furniture trap on the roads, you know, roundabouts, speed dumps, uh, average speeds much, much faster. We got the radios stressing everybody probably. So uh, you see more crashes and uh, probably also a bit harder because uh, 
uh, they go faster. So uh, it's getting more professional and uh, keep in mind my generation. We would not go. We had a stage like like 200 kilometers. I can promise you we would ever, never go fast before you saw like the chopper in the air, the helicopter, and you knew television starting. We start the final there. Eh? So you could go really, really easy, really, really slow for 150 kilometers. Trust me, it could be damn boring also. Eh? We did two of Holland in the 80s and they took our prize money because every time we went slower than 25 kilometers an hour. <laughs> you know, so. I remember it was raining and uh, we stopped on that bridge so the showers was gone. Eh? I mean, we don't really see that anymore, anymore in cycling. That's probably good also. Eh? So uh, for sure it's more dangerous and that's just a racing. Yeah? I think everybody on social media Twitter, Instagram. I just saw somebody, I don't think it was from Scotland. I think it's like drivers. I know it's coming more and more cyclists there, right? Tourists, you know, social rides, you know, like fat old guys like me riding the bike with the friends. But the drivers and the from the cars is getting a bit more aggressive also, aren't they? You know, I see accident when I go on Sundays like today. I never saw before in my life. Mm. So uh my son is riding, he's 17, he's riding for a junior team. But if you said tomorrow, I quit cycling, I would probably uh, smile with one eye and cry with the other. Is that Albert? Because, yeah, that's bad boy, Albert. So what's, what's um, I mean, that's strange because like, Den- I mean, in the UK here, we're in London and we always think Denmark's this like hacienda of cycling, this holy land where it's complete harmony for cyclists and other motor traffic so is it is it not is it even changing in denmark it was getting worse and worse the last five probably 10 years you know it doesn't happen overnight but here with during the corona it's probably the same in uk why you know bike business been going steady down selling bikes but like with the corona nobody could travel it seemed like the whole population bought a bicycle and everybody get on the road now eh? mm. everything sold out it's good for, for the bike shops they have like the golden days now eh? but all the cyclists you know it's good for cycling of course everybody follows it's good for the sponsors but uh, for the drivers it's probably been a bit annoying eh? so even after 50 years doing the same circuit by training I have to change it you know I have to find some new roads because I mean, you feel like you risk your life sometimes. People just getting mad. And uh, no, I'm happy I'm not 17 today. <laughs> you finding, your, finding yourself uh, back in back on the saddle a lot more over these last few months? Because I follow you on Instagram and you just mentioned there, you know, fat old men like me. You're absolutely not that guy. You you look like you could... <laughs> honestly, I'm not, I'm not just saying this. You look like you could still compete. Uh, and you're often joking about putting some of the younger guys to shame when you go out on rides. So, uh, so yeah, how, how often are you still riding? And is it something that Mike Tyson has just come and fought a boxing match at the age of 51? Do you think that maybe at some point you might go for a veteran record? Are you still burning to compete? No, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm 58. And uh, honestly, I don't feel it. I don't really feel the age. But, you know, I, I was never really fed up with cycling. You know, you can always sort of choose... I mean, with job and everything, you would never really know what's going to happen. But I mean, you, you can decide what you're drinking, what you're eating, and how much you're training if you have the time. And when we go into like, I was to the Welser, 
well, at least I can run every second day. I can run 10 kilometers. That's a matter of discipline, isn't it? Mm. And uh, sort of, I always thought when I quit cycling, you don't know when, when you stop, but I thought like I probably never gonna uh, ride my bike anymore. And uh, so I quit cycling and uh, I did a marathon, had a bit of fun. But after a few months, I realized uh, I just loved it. I, I loved it even more because I didn't have to do it anymore. So with the corona, I probably did like, I don't know, three, four times a week, you know, with, with the young kids. And I just love it. it it's just uh, making me feel good. I love the bikes. I love the gear, you know. I love the pain. And uh, if you can do the young kids a little bit of harm, hurt them on and off, it's a good feeling also. Did you ride more? Because, you know, when racing stopped in March and everything went into lockdown, did you go back to Denmark? And were you were you riding more? Because it's certainly over here, that was when the big boom took place and I was riding more than ever. I think James was as well. So was, did you sort of... How I mean, how was your lockdown as well? How was it in Denmark? I mean, those three months, I think, was the best three months of my whole life. Yeah. Because we were allowed to get outside. Okay, group, group of 10 riders, but that's a good number. So then mm. you have uh, a good small group, 10 riders, you know. If you're more 20, you know, sometimes 30, 50 guys is going groups. It's, it's too many, yeah. So 10 riders, I had Vega B. Paul Johnson with me, you know, we have a good, and then some elite riders also, of course, uh, stronger than we are. But for three months, you know, I was building up and uh, there's not much work to do. And uh, I was quite busy the last 10 years you know, with uh, whatever I'm doing as sports director, 160 days of traveling. I work a bit of Eurosport, I be a politics here in the city council. So it was not exactly boring the last 10 10 years or 15. So suddenly, I mean, getting up, uh, good weather. Something happened with the weather from the day they said Corona. Mm. It was good weather. <laughs> Spring was coming. Yeah? It was just perfect, you know. You know, those long rides, 120, 150, having a coffee because you didn't have to catch up with anything. You know, it was just, it was just nice. And step by step, the, the shape is getting better, you know, and it was, was nice. So was it, a, it was a good break for you, like that, then three months, was it like a real, um, one of a, like a reset almost, where you could just relax, and you probably spent more time with your kids as well, and at home, more than you have in them last 10 years? They, they did it, uh, I mean, I, I was never ever on holiday with my family, I was never always, because when you travel 150, 160 days a year, then you sport when I'm home, you know, I was always like, one week behind with everything I'm doing. I was a little bit too late, you know, when I was pressing about your mails, whatever you have to do. But I felt like first time in many years, I was really catching up, you know, I answered all my emails, you know, I didn't have that bad feeling that I forgot something. So, so no, it was perfect there. Eh? And then you start to lose weight, you know, I was losing five kilos just from training, not because I was fanatic, but was was nicer. Would you say that you, do you prefer your life as, you know, from the team car or do you, prefer your once upon a time life as a racer it's a very good question it's a very very good question that's of course a little bit depends on the day you can have those days like you had in the world so 230 kilometers small roads but they to be honest i think i would do it everything again just a little bit better <laughs> you know just like 
I learned from my mistake also. And you always think if I have a second chance, I think I would have won a little bit more races. Would you would you take riding now, or would you want to go back to 1985 again, or would you prefer to be 17, 18 now and being able to ride in this peloton? No doubt. I mean, keep in mind, I turned pro in uh, eight, eight, 86, stopped 98, and that was probably the worst period ever of cycling. With EPO, with cheating, and everything was a nightmare. And you could probably be the biggest talent in the world, but if you didn't do drugs, you would never win a single race. You know, So uh, forget about it. I doesn't even like the period. I love training. I loved racing, you know, but it was uh, for me it was not good period period of cycling. Nobody can be, be really proud of it. Mm. And it'd be, I mean, and when you look at the racing today, it seems more open. It seems like more riders are winning. You've got guys like Remco, one of your guys. You've got Matteo van der Poel, who are like that little bit better genetically. But back in your day, it was Lance winning everything for a long time, or it was another rider who would come and win by 10 minutes. So it seems more 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 interesting now, anyway. Yeah, I think it's better cycling now because, I mean, without drugs and cycling, you know, it's, everybody's been a little bit more on the same level. Of course, you always have type like, like Van der Poel, Mott van Aert, Remco van Evenepoel, uh, Alaphilippe, you know, Peter Sagan is a piece of art also. Where you have them just 1%, 2% there, but the real Superman, you know, to be honest, we know that just doesn't doesn't exist in in cycling. And when you look at like uh, Tour de France, how Pogacar he did it, you said like, how how did that happen? You know, it was really good cycling. You know, they're so close. You saw, yeah, you saw Tao, Jürgen Hart. Yeah. Wow, you think it you? Eh? That was probably one of the first races I ever saw. I mean, the the the, the starting up with the uh, with Gwen Thomas, you know, and everybody think, I mean, he was my favorite before. And then, then he uh, crashing at kilometer zero and they sort of have to uh, event themselves one more time in yours. And suddenly, and you know it because when the captain is out, the guys on, on the second row, they, they take over. Just imagine if Gwen Thomas wouldn't have crashed what well, was Ghana, maybe he would never won a stage. Yeah. He would never have won the Giro because they would have do the pro- probably like a Jumbo Visma, just controlling, controlling, and then maybe he would be second or third or fourth, Green Thomas. You don't know. So what happened to Enos, I think that was very, very good for cycling. And I think even Brentford, he liked it. Eh? They probably, because what they did with Froome was good for Froome, but was fucking boring, wasn't it, to us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, how they did it. So they, they still won just in another way. I'm not sure they can do it one more time. <laughs> but it was very, very good cycling. I really love to watch it. Well, that was good. And Anna, that was a new superstar. Was mm. nice. was nice. Do you, do you think that it is a freak occurrence this season being so exciting because of everything that went into it before, i.e. nobody went racing except for 70 days all at the same time? Or do you think we've actually seen a bit of a tide change in the way that professional cycling will be conducted? It's, it's again, it's a difficult question because, of course, we will never know how it would have been without the corona, you know. Eh? But mm. of course, with the long break, and then 
normally nine months of racing, you put in small box of three months. You thought, wow, that could be pretty crazy. Yeah, some weird thing could stop stuff could happen. I think it's still like for a Danish who could train, probably for British who would train a bit, you know, the Belgians, the Dutch, Germans who could be outside, had a bit of advantage to a Spanish rider, Italian, you know, Colombian who was totally locked down in the little flat. And uh, luckily, you know, they probably did the swift stuff, but luckily it wasn't very good. <laughs> it looked like it's still very important you can ride on the road. Eh? Mm. Like, and we saw it before. Now, I talk about the Danish, but I think it was pretty good for the Danish that they could get out training. You know, some cow winning his stages. Asgain was good, you know, the winning Paris Tour. So I think it was good being out of the road. So it was, it was a weird season. Very, very hard, very intensive and uh, quite surprising winners. But do you, do you believe Dave Bailswood when he says, actually, I want to be a more exciting cycling team next season? I met him in uh, Walter and he said exactly the same. He just said exact, exactly the same. He said he wanted to ch- change the structure of the team and uh, he loved the types like... Uh, actually, he made he reminded me a little bit. You remember Peter Post, like the big manager of Panasonic, Chiralik? Mm. And... Uh, Basically, Braveheart said he sounded a little bit like Peter Post, where he said, my, my riders have to look like uh, movie stars. You know, mm. we have to change everything. Good looking guys like Ghana, like Tao, Gilgan Hart, you know, we have to attack, you know. And and uh, I think he meant it when he said it, but with Braveheart, you know, we know, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we'll wait till we'll, we'll think that's the case. Then the Giro will happen and there'll be uh, seven of them on the front again. Exactly, that's what I mean, because you saw also with uh, the Bovisma, you know, they got a lot of uh, critics for how they wrote the two, and like, of course, after the race, we all professors in cycling, you know, yeah, they did that wrong, they shouldn't have control, but at the end of the day, they did the same again when they went to Worlds, <laughs> you know, same old story, you know, you do it when you have the leader jersey, it's not really plan B, I mean, Otherwise, you have to write like Astana. You raise, you raise an interesting point there about um, promoting those, making those superstars in your team, making them like movie stars. And back when you were riding, although you said that, yeah, you know, it's probably really, really tough on riders and a very difficult time for the sport. But you had these big characters. It kicked off with Indurain. You were riding in a team with Rhys, Johan Brunils in there, um, there's Jan Ulrich, Eric Zabel also on your team, Telecom team. Do you think that we just we just can't get back to those stars? Because they were, you know, almost like wrestlers. They had these big personalities and you see these pictures now and they look incredible on a bike, whereas everyone looks very similar maybe and is a bit more not so outspoken. Do we need more more of that, more of that stardom? Yeah, we need more like stars like that but it's not gonna happen it's over it's done you know i mean you're wearing you're wearing a helmet now you know you everybody have the same shoes in the team the same shoe covers uh it's hard to reckon a rider now because they're so similar i mean they're popping up you know you know on you know on and off on and off with his image doesn't he i think uh, the last superstar really in cycling with the whole uh, movie star around him was probably Wiggle, Brad Wiggins. I mean, 
he was probably the first ever, you know. I mean, imagine he he had sideburns when he won the Tour de France. He had a few tattoos. We never saw that before. Uh, mm. And uh, and then, of course, Sagan, and, uh, who got that, uh, his, old, his own image. But I think uh, the best thing for cycling in many years was, of course, uh, uh, Rigo. And I think with uh, Armstrong, you like him or you don't, but he was a character also. Uh, he did have that little bit of Hollywood, didn't he? He was he was not boring. Eh? Well, he <laughs> made I liked him. he made the sport um, bigger than cycling. He made he just he transcended it. So people who never heard of cycling had heard of Lance, and for better for worse, exactly. that's made it a bigger sport than it would ever have been before. Because he you know he was in Hollywood films. He was on talk shows with Jay Leno and chatting to the president. The cyclists don't do that. And the same way with Wigo. Wigo was on chat shows. Was you know going to Downing Street, opening the Olympics. Getting and that's knighted. because getting knighted because they, they've got a personality, which I think some guys now have, for instance, a former guy you would have, you'd have sort of known quite well, someone like Fabian Cancellara never really had that personality. Amazing bike rider, but ultimately just quite, quite a boring guy. So you just, he just goes by and he's doesn't, he doesn't be good for the sport. He's very good at the sport, you know? That, 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 that's true, but I think it's a tricky business also, isn't it? I mean, to, to be good like that with sideburns, with tattoos, you know, it's, it's still old-fashioned sport, isn't it? I mean, just our good old friend, Laurent Fignon, I mean, he, he did have a ponytail, you know, like, and uh, I don't even know if, if he ever went to, to university, but like they called him the professor. He was riding, you know, with a Cartier glasses, you know, and uh, he got that image but uh, at least he was winning to the France also. Uh, I mm. mean, until you're winning a few big classic, you better just look pretty normal, uh, you, know, you know, because still I'm a bit old-fashioned also. If I look at cyclists, two young kids, one with earrings, tattoos, and the other one with a normal haircut, I probably choose the guy who's looking most normal. Mm. And then, of course, like modern cycling, I mean, Nobody have an opinion about anything anymore. I mean, it's very, very easy to make a mistake on social media, you know, and the whole world gonna hate you, you know. Uh, so, uh, all the press officers, you have two, three, four, and everything that they, they, of course, you have to be on social media, but I think it's very easy to do something wrong also. And uh, I mean, the, there was a US guy was with the red beard from a track who was waving with the black hand or something. And Quinn, was, Quinn Simmons. Yeah, he. I, I don't still understand what he did wrong, you know, but that, then he was a racist, of course. And so, so the world is just getting more weird with all the social media and uh, it's hard to follow, isn't it? Mm. Is that something that, you know, for the guys on, uh, on Quick Step, you're training every day, you're probably doing some work in the gym? you're going out and you're riding a lot, you're doing turbo work. Is there also half an hour on social media being taught, this is how you use Twitter, this is what you do say, this is what you don't say? I think that's not only in cycling, isn't it? Luckily, mm. we have a few uh, press officers and it's their job, you know. When I was young, even young sports director, a sports director, you were basically a sports director, you were a manager, you had a lot of big responsibility, you know, uh, Today, as a sports director, you okay. You, you're like a driver. You know where you're driving, 
but he, uh, Patrick Lefebvre, he's the boss, he signed the writers, I read in the papers sometimes, who is signed, you know, you have doctors, you know, probably in my days, the Sonier was bit of the doctors also, if you know what I'm saying, And uh, but today you only just have real doctors in the team who take care of the writers, whatever, when they have a crash, you know, they have to clean the wounds or... or, or if they got flu, whatever, you have the doctors. So uh, you have the dietist, you know, psychologist. And uh, I have absolutely zero to say this. I think I just drive the car. <laughs> so is it easier for you now? Because, so as you said, like when you first started at sort of um, in the team car, were you, was your day more full on? Were you doing more for the riders? Whereas now you've just got to focus on being in their ear on that stage or that race. No, it, it should be easier, but it's not. It's much more work. It's more race days. You know, my first, let's say my first years with T-Mobile, uh, 20, uh, 15, 20 years ago, I started with T-Mobile as a sports director and uh, 120 race days, big salary and uh, no PowerPoints, no race radios, you know. I mean, with the PowerPoints you race every day, it's take one and a half hour. To show it, it's probably take 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And then you have the GPX files, you know, and the riders are fucking stupid. They ask questions every five minutes about when the next climb, when the next corner, you know. So we have to follow in the car, you know. Without the radios, you couldn't talk to anybody. You could have a friend with a P guest in the car, you know, have a chat with him drinking coffee because you couldn't, you didn't have any contact with everybody. You didn't have a Velo viewer, you know, you didn't have to fall every uh, inch off the road, you know, so everything was much, much easier in the old days, trust me. So is that why you're um, starting to dial down? Because this year you, you slashed how many days you did in the car. Well, you were meant to, but I guess it changed because there was, the the season went to, oh, to shit. But how was, um? did that work out for you? Did you have less days in the car this year? Was it a, a slower year? It was already uh, uh, two years ago, but going to be three years now, with Patrick Lefebvre. I had a meeting uh, to the France, and I, I just felt would, that would be my last tour. I didn't have the joy anymore, you know, being there. You know, you have the feeling when you're getting older. The VIP guest is becoming more important. Uh, almost the writers, you know, the public, the journalists, you know, got big egos going around. They think they created the Tour de France, you know, and the... Uh, uh, so I did, I don't know, I did probably more than 20 Tour de France, but three years ago was the only Tour de France I never made it to Paris. I was boss director because we was down in Po, and I said to my boss, Patrick Lefebvre, please can I go home now? We still have with Marty or Tom Steele's, you know, they can do Paris. I don't have to be. And I took the flight home to Copenhagen before we even went into Paris. And I just knew that would be my my last Tour de France. But I really do love you know, the smaller races, you know, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a little bit back to basic, you know, Slovakia, Poland. I still love two of Poland, even with all the best things happened there, you know, it's a little bit back to roots, you know, uh, not too big crew, uh, not too many VIP guests. It's more authentic, I find, like when you go to a smaller race, when there's the guy waiting at the team bus, they're like a diehard fan. The there's It's more relaxed. The riders can have more time to just chat you could you probably have more time on your hands to sort of discover where you are because you're traveling the world but when you're at the tour you don't get to see any of the tour you're just in the team bus aren't you so that must be nice when you're like for instance when you're at the tour of britain like you love coming to britain you love it over in the uk 
you get to see all these parts of a country that you love and you get to, you know, have a fry up when you want. <laughs> exactly. It's probably something to do with my age also, eh? because, I mean, when you're done, the two or 20 times, you probably see it, you know. And uh, But doing the bit small races, you feel like you're back to your roots. You know, my son is riding and... Uh, Two, three times a week, you know, if he doesn't ride, I'm going to see the lead riding. I go to the track every uh, Thursday in Copenhagen, see the races, I take the calendar. I'm watching the cycle cross. Sometimes I even ride myself with the with the, with the the old old boys, you know. But it's, it's just, I just love it, you know. And for sure, for many years, I did not really follow the the amateurs in Denmark, but I do now. And uh, I didn't care, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago about the small races. I just love the classics, you know, I love the Grand Tours, but uh, now everything is opposite. So uh, send me to Slovakia and I'm happy. Slovakia is good as well. Most most casinos per person in the in Europe. I've been there. <laughs> oh, is it Slovakia or Slovenia? Yeah. yeah. Slovenia. Slovenia, I think, yeah. isn't it? Because it's, 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 there's only like three sanctioned casinos in italy that are run by the stakes it's outlawed so obviously they, they pay straight into yeah. vatican city those casinos <laughs> yeah everyone goes to Slovenia over the border but brian i was going to ask you just then because you're, you're talking about the, that contrast between the massive races like a grand tour and then a smaller race what's it like in a car when you're at the tour de france compared to when you're at the in slovakia there must be some pretty crazy moments i look at the cavalcade coming through all of the vehicles and think wow how do these guys not smash up their skoda octavias or their volvos whatever it is i think it's take uh, a lot of concentration also i mean it's not only like of course with two of the motorbikes it's quite annoying but you know the motorbikes are there because they need the photos you know and the security and so on and uh, but end of the day i would not when you're sitting in the team car, if you go to a small race, you know, to a Luxembourg, to a Britain, it's all the same. It's always the sort of the same, you know, you have to make decisions. We're going to ride, we're not going to ride, we're going to wait for him, we'll drop him, you know, whatever. So it's always sort of the same decisions. And I think the only thing you have to think about, even when you are at the Tour de France and you make a decision, I always think in my own head, like pretending I'm not at the tour, I'm just sit- sitting in Slovakia. Because if you start to think about you've got two million television viewers, then you'll probably be nervous. But sometimes you just have to push the bottom and say, okay, I have to 20 kilometers to the finish. We go, to- should we do it or not? It's a big risk. We did the most crazy stuff, you know, going early in the crosswind. I remember when Kathy won a few years ago, was 13 and 14. We decided with Jumbo, Visma, whatever that was called, those days to pull when it was 120 kilometers to the finish. And uh, we came out of the city. The bunch was splitting 10 pieces. Kittle, he was behind because he was starting to get a little bit faster than Kath those days. Eh? Mm-hmm. I said, we have to drop Kittle. And he was always with his team's Shimano, whatever that was called, Argos. Always 20 seconds behind, but 70 kilometers. Movistar Valverde in the first in the first group with us was probably 30, 40 riders. Then Valverde puncture. I said, oh, 
fuck. So second group. Then we start start to ride in the second group and still getting to 12 seconds, you know, 15 seconds, you know. We hear uh, the television, you know, they're, they're stupid, they're stupid, what they're doing, quick step, they're stupid, you know. My Our boss takes it, what the fuck are you doing, you know. Where? And we look at each other at the car, fuck, we keep on going. And suddenly it broke for real, you know. I went back to the first group with uh, eight minutes. I mean, it's probably even, I still feel guilty about it. It's probably still costed Valverde, his uh, podium spot in Paris. But it uh, was a fantastic stage we did that day. I mean, probably only me or us we can remember, but that's uh, good memories from cycling. When you really take the big chance at cycling far out, you know, and you're really uh, squeezing the whole bunch. So what's, what's the biggest chance you took when you were racing? If that's the biggest chance you kind of took, or one of the bigger chances you took um, from... A DS point of view. What about when you were racing, say at Telecom? What were those crazy moments where you're like, it is all in or bust? <laughs> the most, of course, the, the day with Cav winning, but I think probably Giro d'Italia, Kirasso was 2013 stage. 13 also was a long stage, more than 200 kilometers, probably even 230. Flat, 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 but the final really rolling hills, you know. Second, third categories. We discussed a little bit, you know, what we're going to do. We start with see and the break went clear, you know, I don't know, six, eight, nine, ten riders. And uh, speaking to my uh, colleague, David Abramati, what we're going to do, we're going to ride. Telling Cav, you know, the team, Famo, the Pinot. Everybody, we're going to ride. I said, no, 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 not today, not today. One yesterday. So shut the fuck up. We're going to ride now. Start. And they started. And Kathy was angry because it was a long stage. And he knew the hilly part, you know. But keep in mind, uh, Kathy, when he would do something, he could. He was amazing. So he was yelling, you know, like a little piggy the whole day. And the uh, end of the day, you know, where... Uh, he made it, you know, and, and he won the States probably with uh, three millimeters and uh, was a very good win. I was sitting at the reception with a journalist and uh, when he came in, he just passed me. So a half an hour later, a half an hour later, I went to his room to say, get the fuck out of my room. I said, what? Yeah, I told you, you know, I was tired. I couldn't do it today and you forced me, you're squeezing me, I'm never going to make it to the finish, you know, I'm not going to win the jersey, you know, and uh, he was so angry and uh, well, then I was starting to get angry because I said, you know, fuck off, you know, like <laughs> you, <laughs> you was with Sky last year, you always complain about they never wrote for you, now we're pulling for you 230 kilometers and that's wrong also, then you can go back to Sky, who never worked for you, eh? so we really had a big fight, you know, his wonderful wife called me, you know, in the evening. Brian, what was wrong? You were supposed to be best man for his wedding. Now he don't want you to the wedding anymore. <laughs> 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 and uh, we didn't talk too much that evening. And uh, next day at breakfast, you know, he was coming down. He was laughing, you know, and uh, everything was fine again, you know. Uh, that cycling when it's best, you know, all the small wars, you know, all the small conflicts you're having, you know. Imagine if you wouldn't have won, I would probably have been looking for a new job, right? Yeah. 
you have a special relationship with Cav, don't you? How has it been over the years managing him? Because he's, as you said, he's can be happy go lucky one minute and then telling you to fuck off the next. <laughs> yes, I, I uh, he, but to be honest, he was probably the most easy guy I ever worked with. And sometimes it's easier to have a fight with somebody. We could really have some fights sometimes about it, everything, you know, whatever. I, I mean, once he started to, I don't know, the English was using a snooze tobacco, the tobacco that I was so pissed about it. I mean, I think it's some, I mean, I, tweet, I said, you're going to stop it, you know, and then we start fighting, you know, and uh, then we don't talk for one month. Then his wife calling, come on, guys, come on. <laughs> you start talking again. Okay, then you start. It's like having a son, you know, where... But professional, like nobody, you could call him uh, two days before. I said, Cap, he's a writer from California. Can you go? He said, oh, Brian, okay, my job, I'm going to do it. He's we the biggest team player I ever worked with as a DS. And of course, he did have something special, you know, where we could have before Tour de France, the wouldn't select him because he was going too bad into the Swiss. Piva wouldn't take him. Bob Stapleton didn't want him in the tour. He's never going to win. Aldag and I, give him a, let's give it a try. And then he was winning six stages, you know. So Cal was always very high or pretty low. And it's always been the same. But always like uh, having him in the team, life of the party, you know, always creating a good atmosphere in the team and uh, just a good kid. I remember Rod telling me when he came, very young, Rod Ellingwood told he's probably one of the few writers who called him when he don't need anything from you just to hear how you're doing. So very polite young gentleman also, and uh, never ever boring, and that's nice also. Would you um, would you take him back, uh, if, if it was up to you, obviously you don't sign the contract, but would you have him back at quick step in a heartbeat? If I could take him back, back if I have any influence, I would take him back tomorrow, I can promise you. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's sad to see, like at the end of this season, when he was at Gent Wevelgem, and and having to see him sort of fight for contracts like this. You don't. I think a lot of people don't see the side you just spoke about, Brian, where he's like this massive team player. He's known as well for being quite a. He's so clever when it comes to racing that he actually has a lot of knowledge to give to other teammates when they're riding and stuff. People just see him as the the sprinter, the you know the the lion at the end of a race. The apex predator who just wins and if he doesn't win he's not doing anything but it's um have you actually spoken to him much in this last couple of months because it's been hard for him isn't it it's... Oh, i speak to him twice a week you know i always talking to him you know we have a lot of contact i mean that's it's not only a calf i always like you have some some writers i think when you work with somebody who mentors somebody to you, you have to keep contact. I, I not really like, I spoke with, you remember Olaf Ludwig, German sprinter, East yeah. German. Last Sunday, I spoke with him one hour. I'm calling people, you know, you're driving, you know. I said, I didn't speak to, to Olaf Ludwig for one and a half year. When, when you respect, respected the writers, you have to to keep so, sort of contact, you know. It's good for him to be happy also to, to find him his way through life. And uh of course, sometimes life can be quite difficult for all of us, and uh, then I think you have to call people also. It's interesting the relationship almost that you have with the UK um, through Cavendish. I don't. I'm not sure if people kind of in this country necessarily realise how much we owe you and uh, and Rolf Aldag as well for the work you did at HTC and then the wins that Cav was bagging. You know, he he was a cyclist that suddenly was on the news, whereas before 
we had Chris Boardman. <laughs> and, and there was a decade of not very much. And then, you know, obviously British cycling has got a lot to answer for and they brought through Wiggins and things. But do you ever kind of think like, yeah, you know, I, I should be an honorary member of the UK. These guys owe me. Nah, to, to be honest, I would put it quite different because I think uh, with Cavendish, you know, probably he made my name as a sports director also. I mean... I think he would probably still have been very, very good cyclist even without me. You know, on his good days, you you could put our boss driver in the seat of 30 years. He was still a one with 10 meters, you know. Uh, but for me, it was a was a call, of course, a pleasure, you know, and being at the right uh, point, the, the right time and, and working with Cavendish, you know. I mean, his character was, was fine to me, I know. Somebody in the team probably have a deep, bit more difficulties with him than, than I did. But I liked him from day one and he was just a good cycling. But all the hard job he did was, of, of course, for himself and, uh, and his family who did it. And uh, I was actually just driving the, the car. But who, who do you think would win in a, a head-to-head with uh, Eric Zabel and Cavendish? Zabel, who is a, was a teammate at one point for you at Telecom. I, uh, I have a lot of contact with Sabel also, uh, and uh, Sabel, he was East German, you know, uh, and uh, Sabel, he was a good climber, he could do everything, he could do as a, uh, the classic, he could do the, the hilly part, but the fastest guy ever, I mean, it's easy, he won 30 stages of the Tour de France, Cav, I mean, when he was good, he was just good, nobody won 30, yeah, probably the Mercs, but that was mountains also, uh, so probably the fastest sprinter ever was uh, was Cavendish, with his thirty wins, and uh, and Sable he was just uh, he could climb he could do everything and winning the I don't know how many four or five times the green jersey Sable he was sort of different riders also he he was a bit more than I wouldn't say just a sprinter but Cav he was like a pure sprinter where you can say uh, you let's say you have Wout van Aert. Tom Boon, Sagan, they're strong. You know what I mean? They're strong. But like Cav, you know, Kronerwegen, they're pure sprinters. Pure sprinters like Fabio Jakobsen and so on. They're sprinters. And then you have the guys who are strong also like Sagan, Wout van Aert, Van der Poel. So it's sort of divided, isn't it? We, we, it's a funny, actually, with Cav, we spoke about there not being personalities in sport, in the sport anymore. He is like one of the last real personalities when when you see him being asked questions at the end of a race he gives actual answers he's not given answers that has been told to him by his uh, press officer in his ear he'll if he thinks it's a stupid question he'll tell you it's a stupid question as a lot of my colleagues will tell you he's uh, he's told them over the years or but if you ask him the right question he'll be there for 20 minutes telling you the answer he's what he's he's a, he's a one in a million kind of character in that way which is something we don't appreciate, well, I think. It must be nice for you guys also. And uh, I'm not too sure our press officers always liked it because it was almost like, I was more like, yeah, come on, Kev, just go say what you think. And our press officers, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> but like, it's weird. I remember where he crashed a guy also from Shimano, I don't know, Tom Wheelers, you mm. know, in the tour the day before, San Michel, the TT. And uh, he was second, probably Kittle won the stage, Cavas Furious. And uh, you have a journalist standing there 
probably waiting two hours and asking him a stupid question, you know. I mean, sometimes I think also, why would you stand two hours waiting and all the stupid questions? I mean, you have two hours to have your notebook, write down something clever if you're winning, if you're losing, probably even when he crashed somebody, somebody else crashed. But Kev had that very stupid question. So Kev, he reacted, <laughs> grabbing his telephone out of his hand and taking it with him in the bus. And the journalist, he's starting, almost start standing there, almost start crying, you know, and... Uh, and then Cap throws him out of the bus and uh, was uh, was sort of crazy. And I came with the car probably five minutes later. I didn't have a clue about it. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, Cap took his microphone, you know, like, and uh, and he was standing there with tears in his eyes. The, the, I wouldn't say poor journalist, the strange journalist who would actually, I mean, he had to go to handballs or something like volleyball. What the fuck, why would you go to a cycling race? You have to... Expect as a journalist sometimes a reaction also. At least you shouldn't cry about it afterwards. So uh, it's 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 a bit weird sometimes, but it is like it is, you know. And uh, you have something to write about, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember being. Yeah. Uh, I came to um, to Calpe to one of uh, Quick Steps training camps years ago, and there was a round table uh, questioning with Mark Cav, and um, Cavendish uh, was answering various things. And this last guy put his hand up and he said. Mark, what are you most looking forward to this season? And Cavendish pushed his chair back, stood up and went, not having to answer any more of these fucking questions. <laughs> and he walked off. And that was the end of the interview. And everyone looked at each other like, that was brilliant. Can we print that? And like you said, the, the guy that asked it, you could tell he was like itching to ask his question. saying, And then just he was just, he, he just looked so embarrassed. It was so awkward. But it was brilliant. Let's see, he, he got his moment. Of course, he got a, like, like his character, you know, also. And uh, I mean, people loved him or hated him. I mean, I think there's more people who, who hated him, to be honest, especially from his colleagues in the bunch, because he was so loud sometimes. But uh, a, a good boy, he's no, no, no doubt about it. I, I, I will love him. <laughs> so if you, if you were going to go on a lad's holiday, who would you take with you? from the people that the riders that you're coaching currently or the riders that you rode with back in the day? Would you go with Reese and Ulrich and then they get drunk and have a fight? Would you take Cavendish so that <laughs> he could make everybody laugh on the aeroplane? Who would you take on holiday? I was actually out with the boys uh, yesterday. I had uh, Bjarne Reese was driving up to Denmark. We had that dinner once a year with the old pros, you know. We got Jesper War, Petersen, Vegaby, Bowser, Reese. Yes, sometimes Kim Arsten is coming up, and uh, to be uh, to be honest, I would probably take the the old guys, you know, <laughs> from the issues. Uh, we did we did not go fast at the two two dates, trust me, but we had a little bit more fun. <laughs> was that the was that the black black coffee white socks club? Exactly. Where you could only drink uh, black coffee and only wear white socks on the bike. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we had that club when we're going out, you know, we all go, I don't know, 10, 15, you know, and the, always the same stories, you know, we make a book about it, you know, where we make a bit of money with the book and what we do with the money. We Okay, we give a bit of the money to to amateur team and the rest we go out for a fancy dinner because in a nice suit because we was wearing training suits enough in our life, didn't we? So, uh, no, no, I really like... Uh, I'm really happy to go out with, with, with the old guys, you know, talk about the 
the the old stories, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's so many stories from the past, you know, and most of them you cannot even tell here in a Zoom meeting, yeah? <laughs> but uh, it's not I assume as well, if it was up to you, the, the holiday would be to London because the listener may may or may not know you love it in the UK. You you consider yourself a bit of an Anglophile. You you really love our culture. Have you managed to get over to the UK this year? Because I know you come over like three or four times a year normally to meet Mark or yeah. and just to knock about London, knock about Carnaby Street normally as well. Just... Yes, I'm coming in December. And uh, I just spoke to my daughter about it. We, we're gonna we're gonna go to London, uh, just three four days, you know. And it's such a beautiful city, you know. I'm an old bricklayer, so the the old you know brick buildings, you know. I just love to see the buildings, you know. And uh, uh, start off Oxford Street, you know. You have that shop with the walking sticks umbrellas, you know. You think like, what? How can you have that? Big, big shop just with walking sticks and umbrellas. I always go there looking. I think, should I buy one? I'm probably not going to wear it or use it, you know. But it's such a lovely, lovely city. And it seems like my daughter, she, she loved also. And we have some very good friends. I was going to say, for uh, for again, for, for listeners that aren't aware, Brian is a bit of a style icon. If you look at the way that you dress on on Instagram, social media, you've got that kind of, next to Wiggins, you're probably cyclist's biggest mod. Is that a fair thing to say? <laughs> you look always looking pretty sharp in a suit. And I was wondering, you know, I know you've had a hand in designing uh, bike clothes. Would you ever do hook up with Paul Smith and do the Brian Holm times Paul Smith collaboration suit? Little nice little nimble three piece. I actually just did a suit here. Of course, I'm not a designer uh, or a tailor. I love the clothing. I always did. And uh, just did a, like three piece here with a good friend, Mott Copenhagen, a friend, Robert, who got his shop, you know. I I, I just got the, my, uh, the suit with, what do you call it, with the trousers, with the wider legs. The, the sort of flare leg. Uh, I just love like flare leg, you know, <laughs> you know. Now everybody was wearing, you know, like uh, skinny jeans and uh, all that stuff here the last few years. And I hate it, you know, like. So we just did a new cycling jersey here with Paul Smith. And... Uh, and like we talked about before, you know, when you stop cycling, you have those, uh, you amateur, so you have like those almost 20 years you wear in training suit, you know, everybody the same haircut, and then you quit. I mean, what's going to happen, you know, but I like say, you will always decide how we're going to dress and uh, how much you're going to eat, you know. And I think, you know, uh, I liked cyclists when I was a kid, when, when I saw the older cyclists, when they quit, when they dressed well and kept a bit of shape, you mm. know. I was telling the young kids, you know, when they stop, pay attention to your food, you know, don't stop training, you know, and uh, you can always dress well, can't you? I mean, you don't have to be rich to do it, so uh, uh, look after yourself. I remember, Brian, when we met a couple of years ago in Calpe, a team camp, right? And it was just after Christmas, and for Christmas, I got a pair of cherry red Doc Martens, low-cut low Oxfords, and I was standing there, and you came over to me and just said, oh, I love your shoes. And then we went in the team car together to follow the team around, and we didn't talk about cycling at all. <laughs> we just, we chatted about, we chatted about, um, we, we chatted about music mainly, and my shoes. So, you are, you are one for, for the style. I remember that. We spoke about, um, the Rolling Stones, because I'm 
I went to the same school as Keith Richards, and you you couldn't you couldn't get your head around the fact that I'd gone to the same school as him. Obviously, like forty years apart, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not at the same time. But I, I just love it, you know, like like the whole Prince scene, you know, with the shoes, with the Doc Martens, you know, my good friend Richard, she running, you know, the Dover Street Market. Oh yeah, yeah. So the guy who runs is a good friend of Richard, you know, and uh, they got the Doc Martens, you know, collab with a uh, Comte de Garçon, and uh, I just had them, you know, so. Uh, I like shoes, you know, like cycling shoes, you know, and uh, and and I always like the the like the British clean cut, you know, compared to the Italians, you know, Dolce Gabbana, Armani. I was never really into that stuff, you know. So the the the, the, the British clean clean look, I, I really like it, you know. Talking about shoes, Brian, you recently, um, so I ride with. The cycling shoes that have got laces, and you you recently said that laces are really shit for cycling. You were you you were saying that <laughs> yeah, I I love laces for riding. I think they just look cool, but yeah, because you doesn't do do uh, Williams and Remo and the laces, you know, getting loose when you got fifty kilometers to go. Trust me, that can be a little bit complicated, eh? Yeah, and, and you always make them too tight or too loose. If it's too tight from kilometer zero, you know, you do uh, two hundred eighty kilometers. Then you have no blood in your food anymore, you know, and uh, it's a disaster. It's probably look good, but uh, I would probably rather break my ankle than using laces again. I just hate it, you know. I was going to say, this might, this might be a good opportunity to settle a few, a few debates that we have at work about how to dress on a bike. So, for example, <laughs> is it ever okay? Is it ever okay to wear bib tights? Unless you're a ballet dancer, right? And uh, <laughs> I just remember when I was training in Belgium, and uh, it, it, it's strange. You hear something when you're young. And I remember Ludwig Weinans. He just told me that was back in uh, 85, 86 in the winter because I came in tights. And Ludwig Weinans, who won a stage in Tour de France uh, the year before, he wrote for TV Rock. And he said, uh, he looked at me, Ryan, you don't wear tights, you're professional. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. And since that day, I only use uh, leg warmers. <laughs> was this actually a little bit silly, isn't it? <laughs> you know, but it was, I always had it in my mind uh, when you hear something when you're young. And uh, okay, today I was out on my bike, it was two degrees in Copenhagen, and I was wearing tights because it was bloody cold, right? But sometimes you hear something when you're young, you know. You know what Sean Kelly, he said to me in 86, he lived in Villewater. Oh. So did I. And uh, I don't know, one day we were sitting, you know, and I would order the ice cream and he just looked at me, Sean Kelly, and he said, Brian, professional cyclists don't eat ice creams. And I did not eat ice cream for 15 years because Sean Kelly, he told me, you know, and uh, you, you, you heard a lot of strange things in the past and you lived after it for uh, 15 years. There was a big bike shop here in Copenhagen called Banani Sport. And the owner, Bent, he said, you always have to buy your shoes one size too small. Too small? And everybody did it. One size too small because when you're pulling, then you don't lose any power. You know, all the power coming out of the pedal when you're pulling the toe clips. So, I mean, after many years as a professional, you know, you get blue nails. I was always losing my nails because my uh-huh. shoes was... Too, too small, then you're sitting home and say, oh, fuck, it's painful, eh? 
And as a shooter, take a chance, buy 43 instead of 42. Nah, it's would be crazy. Fuck, I go for it. And I bought, you know, one last bigger. And never, ever more have to do that. <laughs> so you hear something when you're young and you believe in it, right? Do you, um, are you, do you go socks over the tights or leg warmers or do you go under? That's a very good, no, it should not even be a, a good question, you know, but uh, of course it has to be under. I mean, Vanderpol goes, Vanderpol goes over, and he's setting a little trend now because exactly, and because bloody Vanderpol, then my son he does the same, and with us here in the house, it gives big discussions also. Eh? And somehow I think Vanderpol he's gonna win that. You know, fashion. You know, even we talked about the trousers. You know, white trouser on or, or tight jeans, whatever you're going, and the fashion is changing every seven years isn't it at least just a bit so uh, i can see you know in a few years that we've got it going with the socks uh, over the leg warmers you know and uh, just look at rigo you know he started with the long with the long yeah. sleeves and the jerseys you know and it, now everybody have it that was rigo right lance armstrong he started with the black socks i mean long long black socks when I was pro, a good cycling sock would go to the ankle, right? If it was longer, you know, we call them Belgium socks, you know, like, and then you have Lance coming, you know, first of all, always black shoes, black socks. But then he went to the farms. He starts to use the peep shots, like, that's much longer. I think he was looking weird, you know, but now everybody does it, you know. So sometimes you see somebody create sort of fashion, but you have to be win. Uh, you have to be good, and you have to win to do it. Otherwise, you look like uh, an idiot. You know, if you just somebody come with a beard, and you're not good. I mean, you shouldn't do it. Eh? So, so past, past or present, who is or was the most stylish cyclist in your opinion, and who was the worst looking person on a bike? I think uh, the most stylist ever in cycling. Ah, oh, that's an easy one. That's Francesco Musea. Damn, he was looking good on a bike. You saw him. He was like, a, he looked like a booster, didn't he? And uh, I'd say the worst ever, Chris Room. Yeah, I, I have a different answer for that. I think Chris Horner. Chris Horner is the worst person to have ever ridden, looking person on a bike. He rides like f- sort of 50 centimeter handlebars and like he has. <sighs> He works, but worse than Froome. At least Froome fits his bike. Chris Chris Horner looks like he's doing a tour, like riding, uh, doing cycle touring with his little goatee as well. <laughs> I yeah, you've got a good point because Chris is getting a, a, a Horner. Chris Froome, Chris Horner, you know, but the worst thing, of course, with Chris Horner, because even when, uh, you remember when he starts to lose his hair? Yeah. That he starts to put a ponytail also. And I think sometimes people with, with, with a ponytail, they do it because then they think that we don't see the lost hair. I mean, sometimes they, they, they start with that ponytail. And it's, unless you feel young, you should not do it. I mean, if you lose your hair, what people can do, make a bonehead or do something, but never make a ponytail say when you don't have enough hair. But uh, I still go for food. It was not really like uh, Francesco Mosa on the bike. It's very true. And uh, another cool guy was... Uh, Jose de Flaming, yeah? Yeah. Chris Helm handlebar with the track handlebar. 
the fingers and the brakes, you know, with the sideburns. Yeah, so it is almost a shame, isn't it? Like we, we referred to this earlier, that riders have to wear, I mean, we need helmets, right, obviously, for safety, but, but riders, this is one of those things that's been bandied around a lot. The idea that maybe riders would uh, chuck their helmets off when they start going up a climb, because that's the point where you really see, that's where the best photos have been taken of cycling is seeing riders on climbs. So they're only going, you know, 20 kilometers an hour. Maybe it's safe to take your helmet off and get some nice pictures for the papers. No, but again, the new generation, you know, we're going to see without the helmet because like we just, we talked about it before. You, you uh, even some riders, when they have to go to sign on from the bus to the podium, uh, 95 meters, you know, they ask for the helmet. And it's probably not because they break their skull, but somebody take a photo without the helmet, you know, they end up in a shit storm. I don't remember who, who went to sign on, had a photo when he going to sign on, probably one of our riders. Then you have, what's his name? Brent Bootwalder, American mm. guy. I know he's writing on Instagram or Twitter. Ho, ho, where's your helmet? So you go, wow, here we go. You know, so uh, no, they're never going to have a photo without helmet. It's a shame, as you said, James, because they do, it takes away the, you can't really tell who these people are. And and plus, people can't have good hairstyles like Jacques Oncatil or Roger de Vlamek anymore on the no, bike. Okay. But I've got, I've, got, I've got a theory. I know that we have had um, a lot of bald cyclists, you know, Pantani, obviously, Reese later on. But I think that we're going to see more. Yeah, I think you're looking like an idiot. I never liked him. <laughs> With his uh, bandana and the earrings, Elefantino, he was horrible. So he, he's not a good-looking person on the bike, then. Ah, oh, he was probably one of the worst. You were jealous. You were jealous of his bike, though, because he got to ride a Bianchi, and you never got to ride a Bianchi as a pro. So he uh, got that. So, uh, so you're saying I'm a little bit jealous? Probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> But I've got, I've got a theory that we're going to see a lot of bald cyclists when they're older. Because I reckon if you wear a helmet or a hat all the time, it makes your hair fall out. Very good point. Very good point, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we should later to you, to you shy about it. Plenty of shows. And then they go in with, with the bandana under the helmet. And sometimes they ask, oh, well, why would you ride with a bandana under the helmet? But that's not to have stripes from the sun, I realised. Mm. Yeah, you get the uh, you get the kind of zebra stripes or the tiger stripes. Ban- bandanas remind me. I always associate bandanas with uh, like amateurs riding in Mallorca. Like that's the c- classic look of like an amateur rider in Mallorca. They have like the bandana, really terrible glasses, and they'll have like the weirdest mix of kit. So they'll have like tights on with a short sleeve jersey, or they'll have like the biggest jacket. But then, like their entire legs out, and none, none of it makes sense. So like they've woken up and got dressed in the dark, <laughs> and they got bloody two thousand spacers under the handlebar, so it looked like a bloody holiday. <laughs> so it's, you can always spot a tourist like and two kilometers. You're saying, "Oh my dear, that's that's a tourist." And then you can see when it's a good cyclist, you know how they're sitting on the bike with the handlebar, with the helmet, with the clothes, and everything. So uh, no, it's a, it's a big big difference. It it makes it worse. It makes it worse though when they drop me when I get dropped by them. On uh, I remember riding this last year, riding out Duez and being dropped by someone who had the bandana, the all white kit. It just looked terrible. And then 
I just got dropped and I was like, oh, this is so bad. <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? I, I, I was dropped by a few ladies the other day. So, oh, my dear. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, it's uh, 1623. So I feel like we've kept you too long, Brian, uh, already. But I did want to ask you one more question. Sunday. Yeah, it's a Sunday. We should point that out. Yeah, it's a Sunday. So Brian has, Brian's given up his time yeah. on a Sunday afternoon to talk to us, which is, and, and during the F1. So sorry about interrupting Formula One. But I just wanted to ask you one more question before we go. And it's, if you were in charge right now of cycling, not just the UCI, but of, of, of cycling, what would you want to change about the sport? Uh, the first thing I would do if I went to the office, I would take, you heard about that discipline called uh, uh, mixed team relay yep. time trial. Yep. yep. That is the most stupid thing I ever saw in cycling. It's actually so stupid. I don't have words for it. <laughs> so that's how to go. Okay. Uh, second, I would make a hundred kilometer team trial team time trial like we had in the past for riders each nation going it's the most painful thing I've done in my life so take back the 100 kilometer then I would take a uh, to the Olympic program we can discuss should it be winter or summer that's a detail we figure out. I mean, handball, the play is a winter spot, but they do the summer Olympic handball. So I think probably we could put even cyclocross on the Olympic program in the summer, and worst case in the winter. So uh, band, team relay, mixed team relay, 100 kilometer team time trial, cyclocross uh, for the Olympic, and uh, then a little bit of much more about the safety of the riders, you know, uh, checking the courses before. I think with uh, Ploge of uh, Jumbo Visma, Lefebvre, they had a pretty good idea about three uh, fours pro world tour races. They always have to take the course before. Mm. Oh, I think it was spot you saw last a few years ago in uh, Pei Basco. I think it was Stetina, Peter Stetina, who there was like a pole. Yeah, in yeah. In a bunch. It should not be there, you know. So, so uh, do something about the, the safety. So there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Brian Holm, uh, as ever, a fantastic guest. James, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, uh, he's just a man. It's a shame that you can't see him, everyone out there. You have to shut your eyes and imagine. But he's just a really stylish bloke on and off the bike. Um but he's just a nice guy, and I like the fact that he's he's just willing to talk and kind of say how things are, which is, let's face it, in in our professional sport, you don't always get that these days, do you? So he's a real, no. he's just a real character, and I imagine he's a really good bloke to work with. Um, as he said, he's got a lot of time for Cav, and Cav clearly has a lot of time for him because pretty much straight after that chat, what do we find out? That Mark Cavendish should sign for the Kearney Quick Step. And now I think this was a deal. I genuinely don't think Brian Holm knew because having read subsequent reports, it seems like Mark Cavendish and Patrick Lefebvre sorted this deal out over like 12 hours, literally. Cavendish went, I've got someone willing to pay my wages and Lefebvre went, oh, go on then. So I don't think Brian Holm was keeping anything from us in that interview. I don't think he's the kind of man who would. I think he would be quite honest. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's and if it's going to be sorry. good to see them working together again because they clearly have an affinity for each other. Brian was Mark's best man at his wedding, after all. This is true, um, and maybe we'll see. I'm not, I can't. I can never remember how many more victories Cav needs, but he might eclipse Merck's still. Four. I think he needs yeah. four to equal four, the record. Four in the Tour de France. Yeah, so that's, that's very possible for a man that we thought would be maybe even calling it a day. I mean, he even intimated as much, didn't he, at the end of last season? This could be the last time you see me. But uh, no, and, and and this led me to uh, realise what Brian Holm was talking about in a subsequent tweet. He's got a picture of Mark Cavendish. So I think he did know, because my timing tell me that this is just before Brian spoke to us um, and on Instagram. So I would say to anybody who's in cycling, follow Brian Holm on Instagram. He's Holm12.16. And he posts up some really great pictures of him and his mates back in the day, but also this one of him and Cav, maybe at like some tiki bar or something. Uh, and it just says, Christmas quiz. Who will start the season? Three kilograms, too fat. Who will come home to where he belongs? Who will say, for fuck's sake, every 30 seconds? Who will give us grey hair and spoil our sleep? Who will sweat like a fat pig? And who will be a proper cyclist again? Extremely difficult quiz. Mark Cavendish, maybe you can help. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, like, that's, Jen, you wouldn't, I don't know. Can you imagine Dave Brailsford saying that to Egan Bernal? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. And then, and to follow this up, uh, it, Brian Holmes' New, uh, New Year's uh, message to us all is Happy New Year to all. Pay attention to the crosswind. Make your goddamn turns. And God save our fantastic Queen Marguerite too. Or the second, I guess, not two. Because uh, obviously there's still a queen in Denmark. Um, and yeah, uh, I could go on and I will just with this last one, which is brilliant. So this is a picture of him uh, in his telecom days with Reese. And he's basically having a go at um, Kasper Asgreen, who's on his team. Yep. And so Kasper's Current Danish champion, a very Current. handy classics man. Yep. So Kasper's clearly complained about being tired. <laughs> so Brian Holmes written, Dear Kasper Asgreen, if you think you're tired after three days in the south of France, I will tell you about the Tour de France in 96. Heppy, Rolf Aldag and Hen, we were all putting on the front for three weeks through heat waves, thunderstorms, wet cobbles, Pyrenees, Alps, the Vosges, Holland, Belgium. We had no fancy bus, no hipster cook with sailor tattoos and a funny hat. Press offices <laughs> does not exist. We spoke with our heart. Uh, and when somebody beated us, we did not congratulate them on fucking Facebook. <laughs> I shared a room with Reese and listened to his shitty taste of music for three weeks. My ears are still bleeding. Now, 24 years after, I still wake up in the middle of the night, sweating like a shot pony, having had nightmares about stage 16 through 44 degree massive central Hotakam heat. We never saw our boss, Walter Gofrit, smiling, and Reese Zabel and Ulrich was not exactly stand-up comedians either. <laughs> Trust me. And it goes on. In Paris, after winning GC... And half of the stages, we ate sauerkraut because it was the favourite food of the Fritzes. So, dear Casper, if you feel tired and unwell, give me a call and I'll tell you about real life. Have a good drive in the air-conditioned high-tech team bus. Enjoy your protein shake. Remember, cycling is your religion. Say hi to the boys. Good luck. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Ah, uh, it's too much. It's too much. You just got to say it how it is sometimes. And, and Brian's one of the the rare rare people in this sport that just. Shoots it from the hip, as we learned in the interview. And that's why we all love him so much. And yeah. he, he gives us so much joy every time I chat to Brian. Uh, you know, I love it because we just... And the best thing about Brian as well is you can talk absolute rubbish to him. And he's he's happy to talk about non-cycling stuff and just chat shit to you all day, basically. Well, 
There we go. So he, he's he's our favourite man in cycling for 2021 so far. Can anyone overtake him? Let's see. But it'll be it'll be really exciting to see him. Um, well, see Cab back back where he belongs, yeah. three kilos overweight, and hopefully winning some races. But um, yeah, I mean, thank you again, Brian, for coming on. That was very enjoyable, and I hope you guys enjoyed yeah. listening to it. And on that note, uh, we will bid you all adieu. We will be back again in two weeks' time with another fantastic interview, this time with Mr. Pinarello himself, Fausto Pinarello. Uh, we discussed a lot of things with him before, just before Christmas, actually. We got on the phone with him. We chatted about, I think we talked about Brexit. We talked about uh, Team Sky slash Ineos, Miguel Enduran, making bikes, um, who, which other bike brands he respects and who wishes he could be. And the importance, uh, really, the importance of losing the Giro d'Italia. The importance of losing the Giro d'Italia. So it's a very good interview, so keep your ears peeled for that. In the meantime, leave us a review, uh, comment, let us know what you think of the podcast, share with all your cycling friends as well. Uh, And as for now, James, I'll see you in two weeks' time. Toodaloo.